Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Hi, everyone. It's Bob Safian. I'm here with a very special episode. At year end, it's natural to reflect on our experiences, what's changed, what we've learned. We want to be prepared for the year ahead and inspired to grab new opportunities. So the team here at Masters of Scale has chosen 10 of our most unforgettable moments from 2022 from both our classic episodes with Reed Hoffman and Masters of Scale Rapid Response. These highlights illuminate key lessons about resilience and creativity and triumph. They're emotional at times and also fun. These 10 moments are more than a recap of the year gone by. They're a roadmap for the year ahead about how to manage uncertainty with grace and purpose to deliver impact no matter what comes. Sit back, listen in, and enjoy. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, 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 I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. Afterward, from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business, and she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple Plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and this is 10 Unforgettable Moments of 2022. Our first unforgettable moment of the year comes from Damon John, founder of FUBU and one of the original sharks on ABC's Shark Tank. Damon spoke with Reed Hoffman early in 2022 about the power of strategic partnerships. 
You can find the link to the episode and to all of the episodes you'll be hearing today in our show notes. In this highlight, Damon shares a delightful and inspiring story from his early days as an entrepreneur. FUBU was a scrappy new streetwear brand run mostly by Damon himself, and he was desperate to raise FUBU's profile. His effort is a lesson in creativity and perseverance. His unlikely plan? Get rapper LL Cool J to wear one of FUBU's shirts. Let's listen. I remember going over to his house. And he was leaving, he's moving to LA because he's gonna go shoot a show called In the House. I didn't know him that well, but I waited out there with my partners for about four or five hours. Damon and his partners didn't have a pitch deck or a lengthy endorsement contract to sign. They had a t-shirt and they wanted LL to put it on. He came outside and I asked him, could he wear the shirt and take a picture? And he said he couldn't because he was going on to a show and he had sponsorship opportunities from Nike and Adidas and all these people. And then if he wore my shirt, he's going to have to turn down millions of dollars. In hindsight, this was a perfectly good reason to say no. FUBU was small and totally unproven but they were part of the same community, raised just a few blocks apart. So LL Cool J reconsidered. He said that he saw me being a hardworking guy. He felt that he couldn't look at his customers, all the people that support him from the neighborhood in the face if he didn't take this picture for me. LL took the picture and Damon sprang into action. I spent every dime I had I took out an ad in the Source magazine, the hip-hop Bible at the time. Everybody saw that ad. That ad would give FUBU the credibility and leverage to secure thousands of orders and make their first big-scale jump. And later, FUBU would give LL Cool J a piece of the company. It was a partnership that was both strategic and authentic. Our next unforgettable moment is, if anything, more dramatic. It comes from an entrepreneur in Ukraine named Alona Misko. She's CEO of a Kyiv-based startup called Fuel Finance. Alona joined us on Rapid Response in April, just over a month after Russia invaded, at a time when many observers expected Ukraine to be overrun. She faced a chaotic and frightening situation, yet she was remarkably calm and even upbeat. Alona shared what it was like having to operate her business in a war zone, including being named Product of the Day on Product Hunt in the middle of a bombing raid. It's a story of resilience under fire, literally. Let's listen. We had a guest on recently who talked about people in Kiev working in shelters with their laptops looking for Wi-Fi. Yeah, we, we like still work like this. During the day, we have the sirens, so we need to go to bomb shelters. But everyone in Ukraine trying to work now. And yes, people work in bomb shelters. And we are happy that in most bomb shelters, we have Wi-Fi, so we can work. So it's like a little bit like normal life now. Because, yeah, we take our laptops, we go to bomb shelters, but... Okay, we still work, and uh, the most 
craziest day when we decided to go to Product Hunt because when we decided to launch something, especially on this day, we will have most number of Syrians during the day. So usually it was like two or three before, but on this day we had seven times per day the Syrians. So we should go to bomb shelter every time. So it's, it was really crazy. Was it scary? You're, you're smiling. It's almost like it's uh, now looking back like it was an adventure. I guess it's an adventure if you're okay, but it sounds a little scary. During the first two weeks, we were scary. But I think on the third week already, we understand, okay, what is going on? And after that, you try to live your life with new reality. We try to smile, we try to be positive because, first of all, I have the team and when they see that we have like positive attitude and all executive team has positive attitude, it's more easier for others like do their job every day. Our next unforgettable moment is about envisioning the future and making a sharp pivot to meet it. It comes from Natalie Massonet, founder of the luxury e-commerce site Net-A-Porter. Net-A-Porter was a pioneer of online retail when it was founded in 2000, and that was only one of the massive industry shifts that Natalie predicted. In this next story from her classic episode with Reed, Natalie recalls the moment she recognized that a second zeitgeist-level shift was coming to online shopping. Take note of the bravery required when challenging even your own team. Let's listen. Women were trying to check out on their Blackberries. I came back to my team and I was like, people want to shop on their mobile phones. To help realize this future pivot, Natalie found herself pushing against antibodies to change within her own team. My own team, by this time, they were all sitting, you know, across from these big IMAX screens. Designing on, like, fully immersive color 50-inch screens. And they're like, you know, no one's going to want to shop on their phone. Look at how beautiful this desktop experience is. And I was like, you guys sound just like the department stores. We disrupted department stores and shops. And people used to say to me, you're crazy. People want to go into stores. They want the experience. They want to touch things. So I was like, if consumers want to shop on their mobile phones, we should build for them the best mobile shopping experience that we can possibly do today. It's horrible and rudimentary, but it's going to get better. This next moment is one from a recent conversation I had with Mauro Porcini on Rapid Response. He's the chief design officer at PepsiCo, and I actually haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. Mauro is recalling a moment early in his career when he'd just been hired by 3M and journeyed from Italy to 3M's headquarters in the U.S. Mauro thought he had full buy-in from the company to enact his vision until one executive gave him a reality check. I don't want to spoil any surprises, so I'll let Moro take it from here. I was 27. They asked me to start in Europe. It was the consumer business. If it was not working, whatever. And I remember taking my suitcase and traveling to Minnesota uh, from Italy and pitching this idea of design 
to this tech company in the middle of the Midwest. And I remember the first meeting to the R&D leaders and with the marketing leaders and, and they loved it. I was so excited. I was like, yes, they get it. It's going to be easy. I was 27, full of enthusiasm. And I remember going to the office of the executive sponsor of this initiative. His name is Monozari. He was the EVP of the consumer business of the company, one of the most powerful person inside that organization back then. And I go to Mo and I tell him, look, Mo, it's amazing. Our design vision is appreciated by everybody. So he was there on the other side of this big desk. He looks at me and he's like, with a serious face, he says, they're all lying to you. I'm like, Mo, no, 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 no. You are not in the room. I tell you, they are not lying to me. There was enthusiasm. And Mo looks at me again and they're serious. Again, he repeats, I'm telling you that they are all lying to you. He told me, look, imagine you are in a gallery. Well, Mauro, you and design, you're one of the paintings and the people are not buying you. They're buying all other paintings. I know because I gave them the money and I know what paintings they're buying. They're buying the latest HR initiative or the new plant in Florida or whatever. They're not investing in design. That changed my life. That really helped me understand a major blind spot that I have. And after that, I developed a technique to understand who was with me and who was not with me. So the technique I developed is very simple. Every time I pitch something, I ask people a sort of sacrifice, a commitment. Most of the time I ask them money, give me the money, <laughs> you know, invest in people, in resources to run the projects. Sometimes in business, conditions hit that you can't avoid, that disrupt everything you've planned. We saw plenty of that in 2022, from supply chains to lingering COVID issues to inflation and layoffs. So how do you handle it when your world turns upside down, when the threat is existential? Earlier this year, with the U.S. Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, I spoke with Alexis McGill-Johnson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood. And Alexis offered some truly unforgettable insights into how she was keeping her team energized and hopeful in a time of deep disappointment. When you talk about your team, like, you know, the conditions you face now can impact morale. I guess it can be hard to sort of keep spirits up when you're losing ground in some legal and regulatory areas. How do you keep your team, that human motivation side, positive in the organization? How do you keep your own spirits up and engaged when things aren't going your way? My favorite quote by Alice Walker is a poem called, Hope is a Woman Who Has Lost Her Fear. <laughs> and I, I think about that a lot. I've meditated. It's sitting up on my wall right now because I think that's who we have to be right now. We have to be fearless. We have to be unapologetic. And we have to hold, I think, two really important things. We have to hold both the notion that we will be the leadership of Planned Parenthood when Roe is likely overturned or gutted irrevocably. So what does it mean to preside over some version of the end of Roe? How do you kind of address that from a heart space while you are fighting feverishly to do everything you can to leave it all on the field? And then how do you like create the container for people to process those feelings while also saying, you know what, but on the day after, we are also going to be in leadership 
when we are rethinking who do we want to be when we are no longer defending a law that, quite frankly, was not sufficient for the majority of our states. That was, as our reproductive justice colleagues say, was the floor, not the ceiling. Who do we want to be when we are not fighting over the privacy and burden and gestation and admitting privileges, all these things that have chipped away, but we are actually having a fundamental conversation around equality and freedom. And what does it look like? What does it look like in every school? What does it look like in every corporation? The hope that I'm trying to impart to my team right now to say, it is going to be dark. We are literally in the darkness. But on the other side, while we are processing that, like Sisyphus rolling the the boulder up the hill in the piece by Camus, the myth of Sisyphus, we have to imagine him happy, right? And I think that's the moment we are in, and that's the fire that I'm trying to bring into the team. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, She needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the (laughs) newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. We're back with 10 unforgettable moments from 2022. If you're enjoying this episode, you can share it with friends right now in your podcast app. And if you have your own favorite moments of 2022 from Masters of Scale, let us know, find us on social media, or send us a message at hello at mastersofscale.com. One aspect of 2022 that's been impossible to forget is the plunge crypto's taken in the past year. Well before the recent FTX implosion, Reed and I discussed crypto's future in our July edition of Need to Know. The lessons here are about dispassionately separating positive and negatives when emotion is running high. Let's jump in. So I want to ask you about the crypto world. We've seen heavy price corrections, some people calling it a crypto winter. You talked to me a while ago about the debate among Silicon Valley investors between AI and crypto, like what's going to be the defining tech of the next era. And in recent weeks, it seems like the markets like answered that question. It's not crypto. That for all the promise of Web3, like it's too early. Where do you sit on this? Did the hyperbole get ahead of practical application or are we like overcorrecting on the fear side? 
you know, it's funny because I listen to both sides. I got one side's like, well, it's all equities that have no value and backing that people are buying. And then the other side, which is this is the fundamental new platform that has been missing for how you evolve the internet, that it will touch a number of really key things. I go, well, actually, in fact, weirdly enough, since they seem in opposition, both are right. The crypto bulls are right because this is a fundamental new technology application. I do think it'll affect things like identity and payments and financial systems and art and creativity and everything else on the internet. And I think you already see some of it, even though the use cases are tiny and you have yet to really grow. And then on the other hand, I'd say, but is the bulk of the speculation around these crypto tokens, do a bunch of them look like pump and dump sorts of schemes? Yep, a bunch of them do look that way. There's important values for the future of our financial society on both sides. And the real thing is reflecting what's really good about how we shape our society. And it's both, not one or the other. So therefore, that nuanced set of how you shape it is really important. So I'm still very bullish on crypto overall in the long term. I think that correcting kind of what the immediate value of these things is, I think, is a good correction. Our next highlight is from entrepreneur, politician, and author Stacey Abrams. In Stacey's episode with Reed, she shared a lesser-known chapter of her life, her time as a business owner, Stacey's story on working with a co-founder, and the lessons of leveraging their complementary skill sets was one of our most memorable of the year. Here's Stacey. We went to Kotzebue, Alaska. And we're fly fishing, we're doing she fishing in a catch and release area in Kotzebue. It was cold. It was beautiful. I'm in the water, I'm casting fast and reeling in even faster. That's Stacey Abrams. You probably know her as a leading voice in American politics. But the story she's telling is a window into her parallel life as an entrepreneur. In 2006, Stacey and her friend Laura Hodgson co-founded a small venture called Insomnia Consulting. Now, they found themselves north of the Arctic Circle, trying to win a new client. That would be the Alaska Native Corporation, or NANA, representing local indigenous communities. Our guides are members of the Inupiat tribe that own the Nana Corporation. And so we're out there, and one of the gentlemen came up to me, and he was going to gently correct my casting. And I said, no, no, I know what I'm doing. My dad is an avid fisherman, so I know how to fish. But her guide pointed out the obvious flaw in her argument. He said, well, you're not catching any fish. I'm like, I don't want to catch the fish. It's cold in this water, and I just want to give it a requisite amount of time and then get out. But out of graciousness, because I am Southern, I caught three she fish. I demonstrated my prowess with the rod and the reel. I released the fish and I got out of the water. I'm back on the boat. I'm reading the book I want to read. And Laura is still in the water. And she is catching and releasing. And her she fish count is you know, rising by the moment. And they lean over and they said, she's really good. Is she going to stay out there all day? And I'm like, Laura's going to stay out there until you tell her to stop. Despite the frigid temperatures, Stacy's co-founder was determined to be the queen of the she-fish. I think that was one of those moments where in the cold of Alaska, I saw encapsulated who we are. 
I want to get the mission done. And Laura is relentless. We refer to ourselves as yes and but. She is yes. And I then go, but. This fishing tale could be a modern fable of entrepreneurship. On the one hand, Laura, relentless pursuit of a goal and a willingness to stay in the icy river no matter what. On the other hand, Stacy, who said, get the job done fast and get the heck back on the boat. When we tell the stories of successful founders, we often elevate that first way. We say, be competitive, tenacious, the last one in the water. But look closer. Stacy's approach is not just viable, but ruthlessly efficient. She knew her goal was to win the client, not catch the most fish. So she marshaled her resources where they mattered most. Both approaches are valid, and both Stacy and Laura would go on to become scale leaders. As yes and but, each would have a different challenge in front of them. Our next unforgettable moment is about gratitude and about impact. With COVID-19 seemingly fading as a lethal threat in much of the world, it's easy to take for granted the incredible achievement of COVID vaccines. The next story is from someone who worked tirelessly to get those vaccines into the world, Moderna CEO Stefan Bancel. Here, he shares with Reed the moment he learned that Moderna's mRNA vaccine trials were a success. And then it was in November, the day before we, of course, we announced the data publicly was on a Sunday. We have an independent safety monitoring board met and reviewed the blinded data with placebo and so on. I was not at that meeting, but were informed after of a you know, 94% efficacy and so on, which was crazy. And we spent two minutes just with my team once we disconnected the other members just to think, okay, what do we do and so on. And then I was at home, it was on a Sunday, and I called my wife and my girls and I just started crying and we had a big kind of family hug, everybody crying like, like little kids, you know, just, I was just so happy because what went through my head emotion-wise and so on was, yeah, we were going to be able to help a lot of people. Yep. No, oh, and clearly. And then what was getting your own first dose like? So it was surreal because in the 10 years before, I never thought, and I hope I would never need a Moderna product because we were working on cancer drug and drug for people with heart attacks and rare genetic disease, all very bad stuff. And what was very special is I went with my wife and the nurse were very nice because the nurse were vaccinated before us. And so they were super thankful when they realized I was a CEO and so on. And I started the company and everything. And so I said, do you mind if I got the shot at the same time as my wife. We moved the partition and so on to put the two chairs together and we talking to each other. I, I took my wife's hand and we both literally on respective arms got our shot. Not all of our favorite moments of the year had to do with recent history. In this next story from Bill Ford of Ford Motor Company, we're going back in time, though not all the way to 1903 when Bill's great-grandfather Henry Ford founded the company. Instead, we're digging into Bill's efforts over the last few decades, refounding parts of the organization that had become outdated. One of the most glaring examples is the River Rouge plant, or as Bill refers to it, the Rouge. Once a symbol of modern automation, the Rouge had fallen into disrepair, polluting the land and waterways surrounding it. Bill wanted to transform it into a model of environmentally responsible manufacturing. Here's how that happened. Some things were very high tech. 
like we use the paint fumes, which are especially noxious. We captured them to power a fuel cell to power the plant. We used things that were very low tech, like we had Michigan State come in and they did a field of phytoremediation where they planted swales of grasses, which would suck up all the heavy metals. And what would come out the other end is drinking quality water. Imagine that versus giant PVC tubes of junk that are dumped directly into the Detroit River and the fines we would have had to pay to do that. And all this was was a field of very attractive plants, about as low-tech as you could get. Same thing with the parking lot. Instead of having sewers and everything puddle up, we just did permeable pavement. So everything just went right into the ground and there was no runoff and all the nasty things that goes with runoff. You know, and then we did, at the time, the world's largest green roof. This green roof is, by itself, a feat of engineering. It covers 10.4 acres. That's about eight NFL football fields. 13 different species of vegetation grow on the roof and create a habitat for nesting birds. It keeps the factory 10 degrees cooler in the summer and 10 degrees warmer in the winter. Its very existence created a foothold for the green roof industry in North America. But as Bill points out, Ford employees had skin in the game beyond making life better for local birds. Most of everything we did was a cost save. It was also very important to humanize the place, not just make it green. So we opened it all up with natural light. Not surprisingly, our employee satisfaction went up dramatically working there. So absenteeism dropped. And all the things that we worry about as employers got better. In the end, it was a huge success, and other automakers came to study what we had done. Interestingly, just like they had done 100 years prior to study what my great-grandfather had done. Finally, for our last moment, we want to share a highlight from the inaugural Masters of Scale Summit 2022, which for us was certainly one of the most unforgettable events of the year. I was joined on stage for a session on creating culture by Angela Arendt of Apple and Burberry, Dara Khosrowshahi of Uber, and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. This snippet has Angela and Dara comparing Angela's transformation efforts at Burberry and at Apple. While the tactics were different, what connects them is Angela's clarity and her passion. I mean, Angela, you had, you had a, to do a, a turnaround at, at Burberry and had some difficult kinds of conversations not unlike Doris talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I think like you said, you know, you pull everybody together, you got to be transparent. And you can tell by looking in the audience at your top 100 who's going to be on your team and who's aligned to your strategy and vision. And not mine, by the way, the one the team had put together. And funny, my first offsite at Burberry, literally, you know, three days in. And I looked out in the audience and I said, I can tell you right now who's not on board. And I am very happy to give you an incredible package. will be a great reference for you. But everybody needs to be 100% in or we're not going to win. I'm curious as to what Eric said. For Uber, it was pretty clear as a turnaround. For coming into Apple from Burberry, it wasn't 
Did you have to state whether this was a turnaround or keep keep going the way you're going, et cetera? Did you have to put that down? Yeah, no, no. I said the opposite. Okay. I said, again, the most successful retailer on the planet, five times the productivity of any of its closest peers. And so, no, I had to honor and respect what was built and say, might sound odd, but I don't know what to do. So together, you know, you're on the front line. And that's why we're going to put all these communications in place so you can tell us and you can problem solve. And so almost the opposite. And I said, I know there's things we can do better inside of the store. So what are those? And I know that, well, we actually did a huge crowdsourcing exercise with, and the the teams kept growing as we were rolling out more stores. And we said, in order to inform the new in-store experience, we asked them over the course of six months, what did they feel Apple should be doing more of in their community? And that's when that informed the whole experience, but it involved them. So then when you launched it, I mean, you could ramp up to you know, 20, 30,000 sessions a week, and they owned it because they were part of creating it. There you have it, our 10 most unforgettable moments of the year. We hope you've enjoyed them and that they've helped remind you of your own milestones and achievements. Enjoy the holidays, and from all of us at Masters of Scale, we wish you a safe and happy new year. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark-Bray, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Chris Gautier. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nolt, and Brad Worrell. Mixing and mastering by Baron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, Paria Finger, Saida Sapieva, Greg Beato, Adam Heiner, Alfonso Bravo, Colin Howarth, Willem Crowles, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, 
Samuel Puta, Anna Pisano, Sarah Tarter, Leah Sermetis, Charlie Manessis, Chineme Azequena, Emily McManus, Hallie Bondi, and Sierra Black. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.